0: All right, we'll go ahead and find your seats. Go ahead and find your seats. Sorry to be a uh, buzzkill, party killer here, but uh, good to be with you guys uh, this morning. If uh, you're here for the very first time or maybe you're tuning in online right now. Uh, For the first time, just want to say welcome. Uh, We love our guests here at Adventure Christian Church, whether you're present with us now or tuning in digitally. Uh, I want you to know something up front, if you are new with us, that uh, it's important for you to realize, okay? And that is, we don't want something from you, but what we do want is we want something for you. And there's a big difference, Right. We want you to experience the kind of life that can happen when you find a right relationship with your creator and you experience that peace. That is the kind of peace that we want uh, for you. And so, again, if you're new with us today, uh, we are so glad uh, that you're here. Uh, We're going to be wrapping up this series that Brad kicked off a couple weeks ago called Monsters. And one thing that we've been looking at in this series is we've realized that monsters tend to share some things in common, right? All monsters share some things in common. The first being that at first, monsters tend to disguise themselves as something harmless, and they appear harmless at the beginning, and then over time, you start to see them for who they really are. And That kind of brings me to the second point that we've been looking at with monsters is that something will happen. A monster is triggered and then all of a sudden you see its true nature. For Dracula, it's a sight of blood that his fangs begin to come out. For Wolfman, it's the sight of a full moon and you see this other side of him. Now the third thing that we've looked at with monsters is that all monsters have a weakness. There's something that will take a monster down and so the question is what is that? Whether we want to admit it or not, all of us have some monsters in our life, and monsters inside of us that appear, catch us off guard, don't know where it came from, and so what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be looking at this monster called selfishness, self-centeredness, and um, we, all, we all deal with this, we all battle selfishness from time to time, and, and really it's been that way since the very beginning, if you think about it. All right, I've got three kids, uh, 11, 9, and 6 years old, and you know, when they were toddlers, I never had to sit them down and say, hey, let me just, let me just show you some ways you can be a little bit more selfish around the house, right? Like I never said, hey, let me give you some tips on how to be a little bit more self-centered to think the world revolves around you a little bit more often. No, what's every toddler's very first word? Mine, Right? And so, from the very beginning, we tend to believe that the world revolves around us. And it's really no different the older we get. We just, you know, tend to disguise it a little bit better. It comes out in in other ways. And and here's what I mean by that. Okay, imagine that you are uh, in a group photo, okay, and after that photo is taken, and you see the picture for the very first time on someone's phone, who is the very first person that you notice in that picture? Yourself, right? We tend to just wanna we wanna come across a certain way. We we wanna we wanna appear, put our best foot forward and, and our culture is immersed with this. We have selfie sticks to help us get the right angle in order to post the right picture on social media. We've got self-help, self-care books that have just flooded the market. There are dating apps out there that give you tips on how to come across more appealing and We're just immersed in this culture of self-centeredness. And yet a guy by the name of Paul, he once wrote this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant. And so the question is, does this monster really deliver what it promises? I mean, can the self ultimately satisfy Is there true happiness in this self-centered approach to life? Is Is there really happiness in that? So if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and jump to Mark chapter 10. All right, Mark kind of serves as a biography about Jesus. He's one of four biographies that we have in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to look at a story in chapter 10 where Jesus directly confronts this monster of selfishness that he identifies in a man that comes up and asks him a very legit question. And yet Jesus sees the monster for what it really is. And so we're going to see how Jesus says that we can defeat this monster in our life and ultimately where, if we don't get a hold of it, where this monster can, where it can lead. So if you have your Bibles or Bible lab, pick up with me in chapter 10, verse 17 of the book of Mark. Here's what we read And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 18, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, this is a very typical scene for Jesus We're often told that Jesus would just be minding his own business, walking down a street when out of nowhere he gets ambushed by someone needing his attention. Now, I don't know how you personally respond to to interruptions, okay? but Jesus seemed to always welcome them. People were his priority. He never let his to-do list get in the way of an intentional conversation. Instead, one of Jesus' patterns of ministry was he would use these interactions with the public to teach his followers something really important. Now, here's the thing. This guy asked a really good, valid question, right? I mean, every person since the beginning of time has asked this question, whether you're an atheist, agnostic, Jew, Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, we're all naturally curious about life after death. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that the Lord has planted eternity into every human heart, we were created for something more than this world has to offer and we instinctively know it. And so knowing this, all right, a man saw Jesus walking down the street as the perfect opportunity to ask, what needs to be done? What what do I need to do in order to be saved? Now evidently, this guy here had an accurate view of who Jesus really was because he refers to him as good, good teacher. Now the word in Greek that we translate as good actually means sinless, perfect, and of God. And so Jesus tested him by asking him why he referred to him as perfect if only God is perfect. Now, as valid as this initial question about eternity was, you see, it was really the wrong question to be asking, because Jesus knew this guy was just wanting to save himself. He wanted to have a hand in his salvation, and so he says, Jesus, what... What Bible study do I need to attend in order to be saved? How many times do I need to attend church on a monthly basis in order to be made right with you? How much money do I need to give away? What organization do I need to volunteer with? I mean, come on, Jesus, give me the formula because I want to do it so that I can be saved. And in turn, I want to feed this monster of selfishness inside of me because I, I want a hand in my salvation. You see, the gospel message is offensive, and here's why. Because it directly confronts the monster of selfishness with inside each of us. You can't be saved unless you first realize just how much you fall short. You'll never identify cancer if you first don't go through a diagnosis unveiling that you've got a sickness, you've got an illness. A seminary professor of mine used to say that the gospel message, the message of Jesus is prickly at times because it calls for us to repent. In other words, to come face-to-face with our true condition and turn, and to head a different direction, to, to think differently. Paul said it like this in another one of his letters, 1 Corinthians. He said, instead... What God has done is he's chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. Let's pick back up in our story and read what Jesus says next. Verse 19, Jesus said, you know the commands, dude. Come on. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. I guess it's no coincidence that Jesus highlights the uh, the very thing, uh, the very part of the law dealing with the way that we interact and we treat one another. Because few things in life expose the monster of selfishness more than the way that we view other people, especially people that are just difficult to love. There's something about relationships that tend to surface our pride and our self-centered nature. Verse 20, the guy responds by saying this. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept since my, from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, this is important underline this, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying... He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, here's that teachable moment, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. All right, so this guy experienced a a kerfuffle here, all right? What I mean by that is Jesus told him to do the one thing that he refused to, to surrender. But this came from a place of love. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Mark says that Jesus specifically did this. And you see, Jesus knew this guy for who he really was. He knew that he was more than what he owned. He was more than what he did or didn't do for God. His identity was greater than his 401K. Jesus knew that, but evidently, this guy couldn't see it. He tied his worth and his value as a person to the things that he brought to the table and ultimately to the things that, that don't last. And so he walked away sad because he wasn't willing to part with his false identity. I mean, after all, if he gave up everything that he owned, he wouldn't know who he was anymore. Now, this story is often misunderstood. Jesus is not saying that, you know, in order to be saved, you have to give away everything that you own and then find salvation. All right? This story is not saying that, that uh, possessions and having wealth is evil. Okay, That's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, Jesus knew directly in this moment, though the false identity that this guy had built his life upon. And Jesus recognized that this guy just saw himself for what he could do, what he could contribute. And so here's kind of the takeaway for us, okay, as as far as this story goes. It goes like this. Jesus wants more of you rather than more from you. Jesus wants more of you rather than more from you. And this is incredibly difficult, okay, in this selfie stick culture that we find ourselves immersed in. I mean, self-centeredness is so difficult when self-glorification is the message that we constantly hear. Back in 1973, six employees of a bank were held hostage. Uh, I'm sorry, there were four employees held hostage at a bank for six days by this convicted criminal. Well. After the authorities negotiated the release, they interviewed those who had been held hostage, and when the police interviewed them, they discovered something that was rather remarkable. It caught them off guard, they were totally surprised by it. And it was this. Those that had been held hostage, as they asked them questions, they learned that they, over the course of the conversation, defended the captor, defended the criminal. And so what they recognized as then psychiatrists got involved is that they had, they had developed an emotional bond with the individual who intended to harm them. This is actually where we get the term Stockholm Syndrome from. And it manifests itself most in abusive relationships where we tend to defend the person or we defend the thing that intends to harm us. And I think we do the very same thing when it comes to the monster of selfishness inside us. And when we do have an opportunity for it to be exposed, what we tend to do how I respond at least is I either hide it, deny it or suppress it. But you see, when that ends up happening, you can get ambushed by it at some point, and the next thing you know, your whole life blows up. The most important parts of your life get affected by it. If you were to take a step back, you'd realize that, that your world didn't just suddenly crumble. It, It wasn't just one decision that that did you in one day. Rome didn't fall in a day. You didn't just decide one day to text the wrong person. Taking money from your company just didn't happen overnight. You didn't just wake up one day and decide to hit the person you love. Verbally lashing out at your kids wasn't an isolated incident. If Jesus wants more of you instead of more from you, then what's the next step here? Well, here's the thing. I think the scariest monsters are the ones that we don't know exist. Therefore, combating monsters requires exposing them, shedding light upon them. Again, ridding your body of cancer can only happen with an accurate diagnosis of, of the problem. And so let's just look at some revealers of selfishness and pride in our life. Okay, the first one is this. Expectations. Expectations. More specifically, okay, what do you do? What do you do when your expectations aren't met? Anger is usually quick to follow when our expectations aren't met, but the only person responsible for your expectations is is you. Now, expectations aren't bad. Expectations aren't immoral. We all have them in our relationships, but the question is, have you communicated them? Are they reasonable? How would you react if the other person or when the other person falls short of meeting those expectations? Oftentimes, the more expectations that we have, the more we give power to this monster inside of us guy in our story expected Jesus to just pat him on the back when he responded by saying that he had kept all the commands since he was little. He expected Jesus to tell him, hey, dude, you're you're nailing it. You're knocking it out of the park. There's nothing more you need to do. But instead, he walked away sad. He didn't expect for Jesus to tell him, all right, dude, go and sell everything that you own. Give, give it all away he didn't expect Jesus to identify the one thing that he had built his identity upon his unmet expectations were the result of building a life where it was all about him. You see few things test us more than when our needs for once aren't met I mean isn't this just true right but unmet, unmet expectations have a way of revealing this monster inside of us and so more specifically, let me ask you how do you what do you do when she doesn't do what you want in, in the bedroom? How do, you, how do you respond when you think he doesn't contribute enough around the house? How do you react to dinner when somebody in your family embarrasses you rather than encourages you? Do you intend to break your word if he breaks one more promise? All right, what do you say when your college basketball team loses another game and for the first time in your entire life has a losing career? <laughs> the other day I, uh, I read a recent study that showed that wives who carry a little extra weight live a whole lot longer than husbands who remind them of it. (laughs) (laughs) And so what expectations are you holding on to in the closest relationships in, in your life? All right, now let me talk to just the Christians in here for just a second, okay? So if you aren't a follower of Jesus, you get a pass on this, okay? You can tune me out. I want to speak to you just as a former lead pastor when it comes to expectations at church. Do the expectations that you have of Brad and the leadership here, are they reasonable? Again, I, I can say this, okay, because what I, what I have experienced is that a lot of our selfishness can get exposed when it comes to gathering together as the church and the perspective that we have of the church in, in general. My experience is that when we hop from church to church to church, it's because expectations aren't being met because we believe that the church should be all about us. And this isn't a perfect church. I just want you to know it never will be. In fact, if we haven't disappointed you yet here at Adventure, just give us a few more weeks, all right? It's bound to happen. I'll oftentimes hear people say, you know, I just wish we could be a New Testament church, a church just like the New Testament. I mean, really? (laughs) Because the New Testament church was pretty jacked up. It was. At one point in time, there was a guy, a leader in the church, who was sleeping with his stepmom. They got drunk at communion time. At one point in time, they made all the men become circumcised just to become a member at the church. What New Testament Church are you talking about? because if the first church was perfect, we wouldn't have half of the New Testament because those letters were written to address various issues and dysfunctions that had manifested itself and had rooted itself in the first century church. and so when you say, "I want to become a first century church," what what really what really do you mean by that? what really what really do you mean by that? Again, nothing exposes our selfishness more than the expectations that that we have. And so if you're maybe constantly complaining about the music being too loud or the coffee isn't good enough or the children's ministry isn't meeting your needs here and there, then I suggest in a very loving way that you drag to light the monster that's really taking root in your life and that is consumerism and that is pride. You see, this place is not about me. This place is not about you. What I love most about adventure is that we exist for those who are not here yet. The most important people are the people who have yet to sit in these empty seats. This is a church that will always be about reaching lost and broken people, and we are going to do everything that it takes in order to reach this community for Jesus Christ. It is about Jesus and reaching those who are not here yet. Remember, Jesus wants more of you, not necessarily more from you. And nothing can kill the mission of the church more than when we turn inward and we start the infighting, complaining that our needs and our wants aren't being met. And so how, how are you doing with this? Well, if you haven't left yet, <laughs> here's the second revealer. Second revealer of selfishness. It's, it goes like this loss. All right, with, with this, we need to ask ourselves where does your suffering take you? When you do go through grief, where do you go? Suffering has a way of revealing the idols that we have built our life upon. Our little gods are the things that we tend to run to whenever, whenever we hurt. Now, in our story, Mark specifically says that the man walked away from Jesus as he considered losing all of his wealth and possessions. And you see, for him, salvation wasn't worth giving up his idols. Jesus wasn't worth losing the one thing that he staked his identity upon. And so sadly, he walked away home and returned home to the temporary comfort of his estate. He wasn't willing to sacrifice the one thing more important to him than following Jesus. That's why Jesus then turned to his followers and said this in verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Again, it's important for us to understand what Jesus isn't saying here, okay? He's not saying that wealth and possessions are bad or evil. Many godly people throughout the Bible were wealthy and owned a vast number of possessions. But Jesus is saying that comfort in life and feeding this monster of selfishness makes it really difficult to trust God more than yourself, This statement was actually uh, a form of humor that Jesus used. Many scholars agree that in this verse, Jesus refers to a low gate in Jerusalem, commonly referred to as the needle's eye. Now, this gate was small and only intended for people to walk through it when the main gate of Jerusalem was closed. And so it would have been incredibly difficult for a camel to get through, but it would have not necessarily been entirely possible. The camel would have to be unsaddled and stripped of all of its baggage and possessions in order to to make it through. And you see, that's kind of like what, what loss does to us it has a way of stripping us bare, exposing the things in our life that we've just grown comfortable having. Again, where do you turn when you hurt? You turn somewhere, the question is, where does it take you? Now, let's be real for a moment. That's what I love most about this church is we can be real, and you're free to be real here. The most I've ever suffered was about two and a half years ago when I walked through a divorce. And if you've been through a divorce, you know what I'm talking about. There were so many days when I couldn't even get out of bed, days so dark I didn't know if I would make it. And quite honestly, if it wasn't for the unflinching support of family, going through a lot of counseling, and the support of close friends, I don't know if I would have made it. I remember one of those uh, really dark days, I was seeing my counselor, and um, he asked me very directly, he said, Patrick, are are you suicidal at all? And I said, you know, no, I don't think so, I, I don't have a plan or anything like that, but I'll be honest, this pain of losing a family and the grief is so unbearable that I do get that the darkness tends to make you think that death is the only escape. He then said something to me that I've never forgotten and looking back it was a turning point for me. He said, Patrick, you're trying to deal with the shame and guilt that you're experiencing through death. That's what people with that, that commit suicide do is they deal with guilt and shame through death. He said, until you first realize that someone already died for your guilt and shame and experienced a death for your guilt and shame. That will continue to seem appealing and the darkness will continue to win. That was a turning, that was a turning point for me. Let me say it like this, that there's no pain you experience that Jesus can't identify with. You can't out-suffer Christ. Corey Tim Boom was a Holocaust survivor. Many of you know her story. She endured the Nazi concentration camps with her sister Betsy, and one of the most humiliating experiences for her is when the Nazi guards stripped her and her sister naked and paraded her down a hall full of Nazi guards. It was one of the most humiliating experiences for her, and It was at that moment that her sister Betsy reminded her that their suffering was exactly what Jesus endured when he was stripped of his clothes before going to the cross. Maybe that's why she's most famous for saying, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. And so I think the question before a lot of us listening right now is this. Will you allow your grief to turn you towards Jesus? Will you, let this, will you let suffering silence the monster of selfishness in, in your life? Let's keep going. Here, here's a third revealer of this monster. It, it goes like this. Money. Okay, the question when it comes to finances is, do you have money or does money have you? If you want to know what what has your heart, just look at your bank statements, and this is directly from Jesus. Money was one of the most common things that Jesus taught about. Our heart follows our money, not the other way around like you'd think. Therefore, what what does the way you spend money say about what you trust or who you trust? Right, Jesus told this, this rich man here that, that while he had done a good job keeping all of God's commands, he still lacked one thing, and that was he couldn't let go of his checkbook. Of all areas of our life, money is the hardest to surrender, isn't it? And yet few things reveal our selfishness quicker than examining where our money goes. What does the way you spend money say about the monster inside you? I'll never forget the first time I heard the story of Eustace in the Voyage of Don Treader by C.S. Lewis. The story takes place in the magical world of, of Narnia. Eustace was an arrogant, selfish, greedy, unfriendly, and wasn't liked by very many people. One day Eustace was exploring an island when he ventured into a cave where a dragon used to live. There inside the cave, Eustace was surprised to discover a mass amount of treasure that the dragon had stolen. Well, that's precisely when the monster of greed is awakened within Eustace as he realizes he could be as rich as the king if he kept the treasure all to himself. And so exhausted from all the excitement of his new discovery, Eustace falls asleep on top of the pile of gold coins. The next morning... Eustace wakes up surprised to realize that he had transformed into a dragon overnight. You see, in Narnia, if you think dragon thoughts and you do dragon things, eventually you become a dragon. So Eustace is no longer a boy. He's not this chubby... Chubby little boy growing up. No, he's awakened to this monster inside of him. He's not who he used to be. He's not the person he wants to be. He's not who he was designed or created to be. The very few friends that Eustace still had are now terrified of him. uh, Terrified of him. After all, I mean he's a dragon. And so the next thing you know, Eustace wakes up shocked to discover that he's become a dragon. Scales covered his arms. He he has a tail. Eustace can now breathe fire. You see, he didn't mean to become a dragon. Rather, it was the result of feeding this monster inside of him over the course of his life. And some of you listening right now know that I'm not talking about some mythical story about some imaginary dragon. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me because this is my story. I don't want to be a dragon. You you don't want to be a dragon. Why? Because that's not who you were designed to be. That's not who you were created to be. And that's not who you are. And yet, that's kind of how you become. Becoming a dragon is the result of making a string of bad choices that you don't realize until it's too late. You aren't who you used to be. You aren't who you want to be. Why? Because you're a dragon. And so slowly over the course of time, you've given life to the monster inside of you. And doesn't doesn't that describe where some of us are at right now? All right, back to the story about Eustace, feeling alone, defeated and confused, he, he walks through the forest one day all by himself. He's resigned himself to the fact that he'll just always be a dragon. Change, transformation is impossible. Well, that's precisely when Eustace meets a lion by the name of Aslan. The lion, who represents Jesus, tells Eustace to come to him. He's afraid yet curious. Eustace follows the lion to a garden. Aslan instructs the boy to undress. Eustace is a little bit confused by this, though, because he isn't wearing clothes. And then he remembers that he's this huge lizard, and all reptiles can shed their skin. So Eustace tries to change and free himself, but he can't. He grows frustrated as he rips off one layer, only to discover there's another layer underneath. And eventually, he gets so exhausted that he just quits trying. Eustace then whimpers to Aslan in defeat. Aslan then says... You'll have to let me undress you. Eustace reluctantly agrees to let Aslan shed his scales. He lies down on his dragon back and Aslan plunges his massive claws into Eustace's chest. The pain is unfathomable. Finally, the lion reaches into the chest cavity of the dragon and pulls out a small trembling boy who is just dripping with filth. Aslan throws Eustace into a well full of water, and after a few moments, Eustace breaks the surface, gasping for air. He realizes that he's finally the boy that he was created to be. He's been washed, he's been cleansed, he's been changed, and he's made whole again. Nobody's afraid of him anymore. Here's the thing. You don't have to to remain a dragon. You don't have to feed the monster inside of you. Change is possible, but it requires letting the lion of Judah Rip some things from you. you see Jesus wants more of you, not more from you. Brad and I grew up in the same church together here in Louisville, Kentucky, and every single year our pastor would do a three or four week series on on finances and money and what 's interesting is that at the very end of that series, there would always be a big call for people to come to Jesus and to be baptized. And no other series throughout the entire year did we see more baptisms than the series on money. And here's why. Because if you can give, your, if you can give up your checkbook, you can give up your life. If you can surrender your finances, you can surrender, you can surrender your heart. Everything else just tends to follow after you do that. The quickest way to combat the monster of selfishness is through generosity. Paul wrote this to his intern Timothy. He said, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that the same that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul doesn't say that having money is the root of all kinds of evil. We don't read that pursuing wealth is bad. Instead, we're told that it's easy to feed this monster inside of us when life becomes about acquiring more. Again, do you have money or does money have you? There's a big difference. You see, every dollar that you tend to give away is an act of faith acknowledging that Jesus is your provider. Several years ago, my dad had a total heart transplant. Uh, He had been on the donor list for about six years when he received a a new heart and right before the procedure his heart was only functioning at about eight percent capacity. He had always had a heart disease, a heart condition as long as I had been alive for about thirty years up until that particular point in time. And and so we received a call one Saturday that they had a heart for my dad and so me and all my siblings, we rushed to Lexington where the operation took place and I met with the surgeon, all my siblings did as well, I met with the surgeon right after the procedure, lasted about 13 hours, and he explained what just happened. He said, well, after we got your dad to sleep, we then hooked his body up to what's called a bypass machine that pumps blood and oxygen throughout the body, so throughout the course of the operation. At that point in time, we then removed the old heart. After we've torn open the chest cavity, we've removed the old heart, and at that point in time, a member from the transplant team comes in with a cooler, and they've got this heart inside there. They then input the heart into where the old heart used to be. The surgeon then said we had to, you know, connect all the necessary valves, veins, and arteries. We shock it, and then all of a sudden, it starts to pump again. And then we slowly take him off the bypass machine and wean him onto his new heart. lasted about 13 hours. About eight weeks later, my dad was at work back to work full time. That was seven years ago, and he's been a completely different person since then. He's full of life. My dad said that the moment he woke up from surgery, he almost immediately started feeling better because he had a heart, he had a heart that was actually working. But you know, the thing about it is, if you know how transplants work. For there to be life, there also is death. And so while we rejoiced because our dad had kind of a second loan on life, you know there's a family out there who was mourning the loss of a loved one, of an individual. And you see, whether you recognize it or not, that's kind of like our story. For us to have life, it came at the result of someone's death whether you see it or not, all of us need a heart transplant. All of us need transformation. When Jesus' offer of a new life came at the expense of his death, that's why God promised us in Ezekiel 36, he said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And so what we need to realize is that God has already declared victory over this monster inside of us, but the question is, are we willing to receive it? Are you willing to surrender and admit that you need a totally new heart? Or like the rich man, will you walk away sad and defeated, clinging on to to the idols that you've built your life upon? Jesus wants more of you, not more from you. All right, I'm done. And I'm going to pray here in just a second. But here's what I want you to do. You heard Brad talk a few minutes ago about Vision Sunday next week. This is perhaps the most important Sunday throughout the entire year where we take a look ahead at where God wants to take us as a church into the future. What does this preferred future look like? What is our why? Why do we exist as a church? And just as important, how can we all be a part of that? And so I want to encourage you, come back next week. If you're listening online, come back next week. Come here for the first time if you haven't been and learn about where God's going to take us. I'm going to pray, I'm going to sing one more song and then we'll be, we'll be done. Gotta know a message like this is pretty heavy. Um, probably not a message that some of us expected to hear today, but I pray and ask, Lord, that you would do something with it in all of our lives and all of our hearts and that you would allow whether it's expectations whether it's money or whether it's suffering that you would allow those things to draw us closer to you because whether we want to admit it or not all of us are dragons we don't want to be anymore and so would you pull out that man would you pull out that woman that's inside that dragon right now and would you free us would you wash us clean and would you teach us walk in the freedom that you have paid on the cross thank you that you've offered us a heart transplant we need it, it's in your name we pray